0: Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at MarksDailyApple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at PrimalBlueprint.com. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. i uh, Really excited to talk to our guest today, Sean Baker, MD. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's the author of The Carnivore Diet, and it's been a very popular dietary paradigm in the past couple of years, if not, I guess, for, you know, all of time, really, when we get into ancestral health. But he's the CEO of MeatRx.com and an international speaker, a consultant. Gosh, so many accolades, so many accomplishments. Welcome to the show,
0: El, thank you very much for being here. I'm excited to, to be on the show.
1: I've been watching you for a while now. And um, gosh, you know, there's so, so many miraculous healings and transformations with this carnivore diet. But let's start first with you're a classically trained MD. Tell us about the what? Did you get one hour of nutrition training? What was the nutrition training? Glucose being the dominant f- fuel? Like, what did you learn when you were getting your MD?
0: Yeah, I don't remember the exact amount of hours I took. I mean, I remember we basically covered, you know, you know, what are the essential you know, nutrients for the human body, you know, what deficiencies tended to look like, uh, not much more than that. It couldn't have been more than, uh, you know, maybe maybe uh, a few hours in a week, I think, something like that. So nothing extensive, certainly nothing that would indicate that you can use a particular nutritional strategy to help with you know any particular disease that certainly is not discussed outside of, you know, we should try not to have people that eat too much or, you know, obesity is a problem. But beyond that, will no no specific nutritional strategies were given.
1: Now, if people were to look you up, uh, you're buff, you're ripped, you you look yeah, you I mean you look like you're a competitive bodybuilder. You are you're an athlete. Um, had you always been fit and if so, or if not, what was the general diet you had before even going into a, a super clean carnivore direction?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, well, I'm certainly not a bodybuilder. I, I you know, I'm, I'm just too damn tall for that. I'm not genetically suited to be bodybuilding. I've been an athlete my whole life, and I've competed in a lot of strength and power sports. And uh, you know, over the years, I've eaten generally um, what I thought, you know, for many years was just a diet that was, you know, full of. Quote unquote healthy foods, which I included meat in that category, but certainly plenty of fruits, vegetables, lean sources of dairy. But I did, I certainly had my share of uh, dessert and those types of things. And I used to think that, you know, I could just train, life was too short not to eat dessert, eat your dessert first type of attitude. And that worked, that served me really until I was about 40. Uh, and then, you know, despite still doing well as an athlete and com- competing. At a high level, I remember I just won a world championships in the Highland Games as a master's athlete. And I was probably at the worst health I'd ever been in my life at that point. It was kind of the turning point where even as a physician who was training hard as an athlete, I was like, okay, this is not working out for me. And I was developing, you know, all the classic signs of metabolic syndrome and so on and so forth. So my journey started with Uh, just first of all, there's a rapid drop in calories, which would certainly please a lot of people who say it's all about calories and that certainly worked. I mean, it certainly worked for me, but it wasn't sustainable. I mean, I did, I lost something like 50 pounds in three months by dramatically cutting calories and increasing exercise. I got leaner. Um, I didn't feel particularly good. People around me were not particularly happy with the skinny version of me and they preferred the fat version of me better because I was a little more grouchy and then, (laughs) You know, at that point, I kind of found in this the, kind of this paleo type of thing. And then, you know, some of the work that you may be associated with Mark Sisson and some of the others and Rob Wolf and kind of got into that and did that for quite a period of time. And you really enjoyed that and, and uh, you know, appreciated the emphasis more on, uh, you know, not so much low fat nutrition, but just quality, you know, whole food nutrition in general. And that kind of led me into further you know reading and you know reading a lot of different different opinions and i kind of experiment with low carb and then finally a ketogenic approach and then you know i just as i further read I, I was looking more at athletic really for more for athletic purposes than anything else i i, I wandered upon these folks that were doing an all-meat diet and they've been doing it for years reportedly with with very good results And i said well i'm i'm you know i don't mind experimenting with that and and so i did and you know to my surprise to some degree i i Felt significantly better, and I thought it was going to be a thirty-day type of experiment. And I went back to the kind of more, you know, uh, uh, inclusive type diet, adding back in some more foods, and did that for a short period of time. And, and honestly, just felt worse. So I, I said, well, all, all things being equal, I understand the nuance between cholesterol and, you know, what's going on nutritionally, where, where we don't all fit in the same package. And so I wasn't particularly wow. concerned about saturated fat cholesterol and those types of things as far as dietary consumption so um, that's where I was and now I'm over three years later and still you know arguably doing quite well and and really enjoying it
1: when you initially first did the all meat experiment and then you kind of were like all right cool and you dip back into some adding veggies what was the difference what were the symptoms or things you were feeling that made you go uh nope I gotta go all meat again
0: um, some of them were gastrointestinal. I just, you know, I just felt that, you know, before I, I thought my digestion was normal until I realized that it wasn't, you know, I, it's kind of those things you think you're, you're finding normal and all of a sudden you feel remarkably better. And so that was one significant thing. Um, I've got, you know, I'm a 50, now, 53 year old guy at that time, I was 50 and I, you know, accumulated some damage over the years with, with regard to athletics. You know, I, I'd beaten my body up pretty good with powerlifting, strongman, Highland Games, you know, uh, high-level rugby, all these things, you know, you you take some cumulative damage. And I guess the good and the bad about that, the good thing is it's a barometer. You know, these chronic aches and pains, uh, I find that when I'm not eating correctly, those come back. When I'm eating correctly, those go away. And so that's the type of thing. I had some, I remember I was throwing this professional uh, caber in California when the last contest I, I was in, and it was this huge, like, I can't remember, it was 18 feet long. It was like 150, 60 pounds. It was twisted and had a really weird bend on it. When I threw it, I kind of strained my back and that had given me trouble for years afterwards, you know? And so anytime something would flare up on me, that would be it. And so when I went back to my diet without any kind of change in training, I said, wait a minute, my back is kind of sore again. So that was a, that was a big hint for me.
1: Yeah. So that speaks to the non-carnivore diet for you being inflammatory in some way.
0: I think that's fair to say. I think there, and I think there's a lot of reasons why that may be so. Probably, some of it has to do with gut, you know, gut function, which is kind of a hot topic these days. I think there's a number of things going on, but that that seems to make sense. I mean, we don't know for sure, and I don't know that we will ever know for sure. Uh, we can, but we can certainly speculate, and we can see what the outcomes are making these dietary. Modifications, you know. I look at it. I, I strongly believe that diet plays a role in our health. And for some people, that's a controversial topic. There are physicians out there that says diet has nothing to do with disease X. You know, it's all genetic. It's all whatever. And even when I look at like the guidelines, I, I you know, as a physician, I still get this you know recurring medical education. And I just saw the recent guidelines and all these diseases, and almost invariably, in none of those diseases, looking at the guidelines, do they even address diet. And these are the same diseases that I see diet having a huge impact on. So it's a little bit uh, uh, disappointing for me to see that, you know, it's all about drugs.
1: Yeah, I hate to hate to say it, but I mean, it's true. Too many uninformed doctors out there. And, you know, there's people, again, like who've cured themselves of MS, rheumatoid arthritis, have knocked down Hashimoto's antibodies from 300 to non-detectable all through a dietary change. The fact that doctors are not even up on this, it's it's insane. And it's 99% of them. and, And that's... That's the bummer. Um, Let's talk about you specifically with your carnivore diet. You are a little bit different than others where you don't eat organs, correct? You eat straight up muscle meat and the fat off of that meat?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably 98% of my diet. And, and, And just to be clear, because there's a lot of kind of back and forth on this, I am certainly not opposed to people eating organs. I tell people if it helps you, by all means do so. Um, there's this sort of belief, and this is nose to tail sort of sort of belief that we ate this certain way. I don't think we know that. I think, pertinently, when we look at these modern indigenous tribes who are basically starving. I mean, these people are on the edges of society that we push there, that they eat every calorie they can possibly get, and, and most of them include plant material in that diet because they are, you know, just that's all the food they have. And so they have to eat everything. And so if we say that we need these, you know, we're going to make a diet that meets the recommended daily allowances of say vitamin C, for instance, uh, we can do that in a nose to tail fashion. If you eat enough of, you know, enough of these organs, the problem is you can't construct an animal. You know, if we were to take a generic animal and grind them all up and, and, and then measure what comes out, you could not get enough vitamin C to make that work to hit the RDA. So there has to be compensatory mechanisms. You know, you'd need something like eight, an animal with eight livers to get you the RDA of vitamin C if you look at the standard kind of ruminant animal. So this, while it's a nice story, and I don't disagree with it, and I think, I think certainly from an environmental standpoint and, and not wasting things, it makes sense to do that, but I really find that when we sort of move our belief, our belief in a story, our belief in wanting to do the right thing, whether it's environmentally or ethically, and we try to superimpose that upon what we know, you know, clinically about people from a health standpoint, you know, it, it's it's kind of disingenuous. And, and to suggest that everybody has to do that does not bear the truth. I mean, I've been doing this probably not longer than anyone else, but I've been you know, studying this population of people pretty extensively for years now. You know, I've surveyed these people. In fact, I did a survey on 10,000 people on this diet. And only about 15% of those people actually eat organs to any degree of regularity. So most people don't. About 85% of the people eat them, either never or infrequently. What I see is people getting healthy regardless. And I know there's a there's a there's this we want to do the right thing for the environment, and I certainly don't oppose that. Um, when it comes to like regenerative agriculture, I'm all for that. I've continuously promoted that. I've had you know. A, you know, any chance I can, I, I, I try to do that. But at the end of the day, I think we have a sick nation. We have a sick Western society, and, and and this is actually spreading to all over the place. And I think to suggest that you must do it this way, you must include X amount of liver and this X amount of brain and this amount of kidney in your diet, when we don't really have data that supports that. We certainly, we certainly don't. Is really you know maybe less helpful than it needs to be and it it actually steers a lot of people away from this diet you know a lot of people say i would try the diet but i was told i have to eat organ and some people are even saying you have to eat it raw which is also i think you know a you know inaccurate and so i i want to see as many people as possible have the opportunity to cure their crohn's disease or cure their hypothyroidism and you know my experience and the experience of the people that have been doing this for decades that they're not really eating a lot of organ meats, if, in, in many cases, none. And so you have to respect that. And we have to say, if we look at nutrition in general, you know, the nutrition science is just a boondoggle. I mean, it is absolutely uh, based on this epidemiology, almost 90% of the knowledge we have there. And this stuff is of such low quality that it is really, really difficult to say who's going to get a heart attack, who's going to have cancer, who's going to live the longest. We really, really can't make those claims. And the same thing with this so-called... You're going to get a nutrient deficiency because of this. Well, I can say that, you know, there are very well described compensatory mechanisms that we see. We've even seen some adjustments in the RDA. Say people that eat a lot of phytic acid now are, are, are shown that they need a higher zinc concentration. So I think the same thing we happen with people on an all animal based diet. We see different requirements start to occur
1: yeah let me ask you well a couple things it's really fascinating well I'll get into some classic objections or questions that everybody has about this um you mentioned Crohn's, so I have a client who has Crohn's, and literally carnivore has saved them. If they eat one piece of romaine lettuce, it's not a good scene. I have another uh, client who has Hashimoto's and has been carnivore for a year, and it's been nothing short of miraculous for them. And uh, if they eat one piece of plant matter, etc., uh, and they're like, "Okay, you know this is the way my life is now," because I don't want to feel this way. So when we look at something like Crohn's, right, which is just this aggravated digestive issue. So the biggest, you know, uh, objection, right, is, okay, you know, Sean, what about fiber? Don't we need fiber? How is it that all meat would help digestion when we out here? And again, it's based on probably a lot of BS studies and stuff about why we need fiber. But, you know, that's just a hard one to wrap people's head around, right? Because this is, this is our belief system that we've been indoctrinated with. So, Tell us why why is it so healing for people with these digestive issues, including even in yourself, that you know you said your digestion improved um, and and why don't we need you know cruciferous vegetables for fiber, et cetera. Can you touch on this whole conundrum here for people?
0: yeah, so there there are a number of different you know topics about you know why fiber may be helpful to us. and and most of that again is is grounded in you know we look at these populations and we see the people that eat a little bit more fiber have a better health outcome, and that can be a marker for anything. That could just be a health marker for the so-called healthy user bias. You know, these people that eat more fruits and vegetables and and, and thus fiber are eating less junk food. They're smoking less, they're drinking less, and so we see that across the board. You know, uh, Burkitt, I think it was in the 40s, you know, looking at Africans and said, hey, look, these Africans don't have a bunch of diabetes and heart disease and so on and so forth, and, and they happen to eat a lot of fiber. There are so many other confounders. Maybe they just didn't eat as much. Maybe they didn't have as much food available. Yud can observe they didn't eat as much sugar, but that that sort of hypothesis obviously fell away and, and probably due to some lobbying from the sugar industry. And so this whole belief that fiber is essential, it's clearly not essential. I mean, if it were essential, myself and many others like me would already have been dead by now. So we clearly can't call it an essential nutrient like we can. Like If I didn't eat essential amino acids, you know, for the period of time, three years, I would already have been dead. If I didn't have essential fats, I likely would be dead. Uh, you know, same thing with vitamins and minerals, you know. So saying that fiber is essential is, is is you know, completely not grounded in anything scientific. There's biochemical needs that we have. Those are well, well delineated. Now, conditionally, fiber may be beneficial for certain people. If you're eating a standard American diet, then probably adding fiber to that diet can help. There was a recent study looking at fiber intake and things like, you know, different uh, short term outcomes. These are all biomarker studies, of course. One of them was glucose stability. And, and they showed that people that had a you know, kind of a standard high carb diet that ate fiber, you know, had better glucose levels. But then they showed people on a low carbohydrate diet that ate fiber their actually glucose levels got worse because fiber became a source of glucose. The biggest, you know, I mean, there are some studies out there that suggest maybe it improves blood pressure. But when you actually do look at the intervention studies, those 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 improvements are minimal. You know, they are talking about one point on your blood pressure. I mean, it's almost clinically meaningless, things like that. Um, but I think the biggest, latest sort of push on fiber is just this thing about the microbiome. And so we need fiber to uh, cause our to to allow these these bacteria in our gut to then produce short-term fatty acids such as butyrate, which will then, uh, you know, help with the, the colonocytes, those cells that are aligning the colon, uh, and, you know, the, the, the butyrate or other short-term fatty acids seems to help with that. The problem is there are a lot of ways to get those short-term fatty acids to those cells outside of in, eating fiber. Uh, you know, if we're in a diet that, that creates ketones, one of the, you know, the main circulating ketone in our blood is something called beta hydroxybutyrate. Beta hydroxybutyrate is only one hydroxyl molecule away from butyrate and it's an easily reversible reaction. We see that the beta hydroxybutyrate whether it's interconverted to butyrate or not seems to have a very similar effect on the colonocyte's health. And so we know that the colonocytes have a good blood supply and they can get that if you're if you are you know generating ketones anyway. Additionally, certain amino acids can generate uh, other other uh, short-chain fatty acids such as things like methyl butyrate. Again, this is one methyl group, CH3, that is easily reversible that can convert to butyrate. You know, amino acids can also make other short-chain fatty acids, propionate, acetate, and others. So this, this whole—I mean, you can eat butter and get butyrate. That's another thing. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways to get butyrate to your colon uh, besides just eating fiber. Fiber can be, for many people—and again, we're talking to people with— IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease or IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, where what's happening in the colon is we're having this this fermentation process going on. That's what's what's occurring, and that can be for some people very painful. You know, this bloating, this distension. Uh, we don't have a very good fermentation capacity compared to other primate animals. If we compare a human who has a fermentation capacity based on their anatomy of about 17, 16, 18 percent, somewhere near there, about 17 percent. That's very similar to what a dog or a cat has as far as fermentation capacity. And we compare that to a chimpanzee where that number might be 45, 50, or 60%. You know, we just we're just not good at fermenting anymore. We lost that. And that was one of the one of the trade-offs we had for that bigger brain. You know, as our as our as as our nutrition became higher in caloric density via things like animal fats, we we, we lost the requirement for the big gut, and that was something that occurred over you know, a period of several million years. Uh, so, the fact that people with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, IBS, you know, IBS are getting better to me is not that surprising, and it's 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 not the, the 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 example that you saw was not at all unique. I mean, I see this really almost daily. Someone with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis saying, "Hey, look, when I go on a carnivore diet, it is it's like miraculous. I come off all these biologic medications. I come off the you know the uh, the uh, corticosteroids, the prednisone, so on and so forth." Uh, And so it's very powerful. And so I think that uh, that is certainly, you know, part of what's going on.
1: The success stories are amazing. And I definitely want to get into a few more of those uh, in a bit, but let's talk a little bit. So, okay, you know how back in the day, this misgaging of lipid panels by docs, right? Like how many people have been put on statins unnecessarily, right? You know, without getting a CAD screening or just in general, because the way that doctors were evaluating a lipid panel, then they're kind of turned around the new paradigm when kind of paleo primal came on the scene and we're like, okay, no, right. It's about ratios. And now we're evaluating them differently. If you have a doctor in the know on that, then they'll understand something and go, you're doing great because your HDL triglyceride ratio is great. But you know, then another doctor could literally be sending you to a cardiologist and we see this all the time. What now though with this, how, how do you look at like, your lipid panel or lipid panels in this diet? How is one supposed to take a look and evaluate that from now this new standpoint?
0: So we have a nation of people, and, and some studies suggest that we have 88% of us are metabolically healthy. And so I really, and I, and I like to take a big picture view on things, you know, when we look at cardiovascular risk, and that's what many people are concerned about, that's why we get these lipid panels. This is associated with a lot of things. There is, I think, there is a physiological milieu or environment in general that leads to this this thing we call cardiovascular disease. And I think that has to do with combination of vascular inflammation or inflammation in general. It has to do and and whatever's causing the inflammation. I think we should be clear that inflammation is a response to some kind of insult. That this you know uncontrolled glucose or hyperinsulinemia. Uh, probably gut permeability, uh, visceral body fat, liver fat, you know, obesity in general. I think that whole entire picture, you can add smoking in there as well, of course. And then there's some genetic factors, you know, if you're male, female, your family history, all of those things come together and you think about what we can modify. And so if we just if you're to see average family practice doc and you're seeing a huge population, and 88% of your people have you know, metabolic dysfunction or, or or unhealthy, and and in that situation, elevated cholesterol likely has some some role in that. Then it's very easy just to say, take out the prescription pad and say everybody needs a statin. If we are not lazy about it, and we say, wait a minute, there are independent factors, and these all things come come together, and it's very complicated to figure out. Even among the lipidologists, there seems to be an evolution in what's actually important and what's not you know is it the lpa little a fragment is it apob is it glycated is it oxidized is it particle count there's this continuing evolution in our thought around cholesterol we've been studying cholesterol for 100 plus years now and we still can't get a consensus on what it is by the people that study it the very most and there, there will be a prevailing theory and that'll get pushed to the side you know it was particle count then it was hdl and all these things seem to keep rapidly you know turning out to where we don't know and so what i i i again at the end of the day i I find that measuring things that actually um are not as dynamic because we know that one for one the lipids can be very dynamic dave feldman and others have shown that you know you can your ldl cholesterol may vary 100 points in a week depending on what's been going on if we fast for a week our cholesterol may go up 76 percent so there's all these things where these transient transient serum markers I, I just get less excited about typically, you know, particularly when somebody's losing weight because these things can tra- change dramatically in that period. So I get, you know, when somebody shows me they've got a coronary artery calcium scan of zero or a carotid intermediate thickness thickness score that looks really good or their visceral body fat is really low or they've got, you know, their, their waist to height measurement looks good or their VO2 max is good. I think these things are harder to measure, can't be measured than a simple blood test, but they they ultimately tell us more about what's going on in the bigger picture and I think the, the you know as we get more and more technology i mean we've had more and more lab tests i mean you can literally go to LabCorp, request you know labs and order you know fifty thousand dollars of labs on yourself and depending on what state you're in you could get more information you could possibly know what to do with and i think we're seeing that even in the medical community we're just getting test after test after test and we think it means this and then oh wait five minutes later we found oh it doesn't mean it, exactly what we thought Something else modified that. But what consistently seems to be the result is having, you know, a big beer belly, I don't think anyone gets better with that. You know, having, you know, <laughs> having chronic inflamed, you know, irritated joints, and I mean, chronically depressed, I don't think anyone ever is going to show a better outcome with that. So if we can improve those things, and those are the things people actually care about, then we have really done some, we've done a service to our patients. And, and I, 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 you know, as I see more and more technology and it's very exciting for the biohackers, but at the end of the day, you know, what counts to the average person and what actually makes a difference is what I like to focus on. I mean, I don't care if I live to 120 if I have a poor quality of life, you know, that's, and that's a whole different discussion. Um, But so again, I, I, I I know people consider me anti-scientific about this stuff, but I really, when you really dig down in this stuff and look at the validity of these tests, the reliability, even how much they change from day to day, even hour to hour, I get less excited about that. I'm always, you know, if I were to take a hundred labs on you and just randomly take whatever hundred labs, I guarantee we'd find 10, 20, maybe even 30% would be out of the normal standard range. And we're going to say, okay, now what does that do? Now I'm going to get more labs and you're going to get stressed out. So I don't think we can totally disregard them. But at the same point, I think we put sometimes we put a little too much emphasis on it because we don't want to do the hard work and take a comprehensive look at someone's overall package.
1: When I like the way you're panning the camera out on that, because it's related to like, for example, you know, even with uh, thyroid patients that are on thyroid hormone, like what their levels of T3 that are right for them would look to a doctor like, Oh, my God, I'm concerned you're hyper when in case that that's really not true. um, And vice versa, and all the different parameters surrounding that. So I get it. And some of these things too, even with like measuring hormones. um, And at some point, you can go, Okay, we can do saliva tests, we could do a blood test, or you can biohack it and see what happens. How are you feeling? You know, and so that seems to be missing from a lot of doctors is like, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What are your temps? You know, what are some other diagnostic measurements before claiming that someone's on too much or too little? And again, it's oftentimes looked at from wrong paradigms. Now, I know you've you've been a guest on, you know, documentaries and interviewed about, you know, debunking, obviously, some claims um, not to get into a, uh, this is not a bash vegan, uh, you know, uh, episode here. But what's like one of the most Like one of the most insane claims I've ever heard is that we are inherently as human beings meant to be vegetarians, which is literally just not true. If you look at the science, not to say that it's not a right paradigm for someone, but what are some insane claims from the other side that you've heard coming at you?
0: Well, I mean, certainly saying that humans are herbivores. I mean, that, that has to be the most ridiculous claim that that, that I've ever heard. I mean, you know, the, the answer to that would be, well, you know, even if you say that we we only ate animals because we were starving back in the you know the the, the three million years we've been on the planet. Once we developed agriculture, why didn't everybody just spontaneously give up meat? Was a meat and dairy industry influencing people back then ten thousand years ago? I <laughs> no. mean, You know, it's it's like you know we 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 have so many adaptations because we we eat meat. I mean, you know, the whole you know our stomach acid one point five. That's not something that is done you know without you know a lot of energy our body requires a lot of energy to develop that acid you know that that, that acidic and stomach environment so it's not just done uh for the heck of it and so and that was done you know probably because we started out scavenging and we were exposed to a lot of pathogens and meat that had been sitting around um, you know we have a shoulder a throwing shoulder i mean this is this didn't develop i mean we went from our scapula rotated literally backwards. rotated as we got out of the trees, so we're not adept to climbing now, but we, we developed the shoulder for uh, partly due to upright walking and also due to throwing. I mean, we were not throwing rocks at fruit. I mean, that's not <laughs> why we developed that shoulder. I mean, you know.
1: Also you just know, want to throw out there like, I've never seen a cave painting that's celebrating like a nut harvest. It's always the killing of animals. <laughs> just <laughs> side note.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much evidence. I mean, this is not even controversial right. among anthropologists except for, you know, a few sort of ethical ideologues that believe that that we should be on a, on a plant-based diet but so it's not even you know at, at all controversial i mean there's 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 radiocarbon dating you know a stable isotope looking at humans and seeing what they eat based on nitrogen content and their collagens and I mean, it clearly shows we are eating a lot a lot of uh animal products i mean you go back even into africa 1.5 million years ago looking at barium and strontium levels another way you can assess dietary uh, content and again it shows that early pre-humans or pre-homo sapiens rather uh, were eating very carnivorous diets. So, I mean, the, the evidence for that is, is very clear. I mean, some of the other stuff out there around uh, uh, animals eat all the, all the, uh, all the crops is another just complete lie. I mean, it's, if we look at FAO data, we see that it's closer to about a third. I mean, it's still not an insignificant amount, but I mean, we just see these numbers being misquoted continuously. Animals are destroying the planet. They're the number one source of Greenhouse gases like the World Resource Institute put out, you know, you counting the CO2 that the cows breathe. I mean, this is just insanity, but these numbers get, get put about there and people believe them. And so the problem we have is that information these days is, is, is put out through social media, through memes, through whoever yells the most, who's spending the most time, uh, you know, telling their argument. And unfortunately that's, that's the situation we're in. And so, uh, you know, there's just, there's just so much I could go on all day. No, I know. There's yeah, and I think that
1: it's great because, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, Game Changers came out. James Cameron, uh, like you said, if you have the loudest voice or you have a billion dollars, right, to get out some false message. And I think the crazy thing in that movie to me was the uh, this three-day test where they hooked some contraption up to some teenage Kids' junk, uh, balls, and then, uh, fed them like some vegan burritos and were like, oh, their testosterone increased. Or it was just like what you have to look behind these claims because when you look at uh, the study that is behind the claim that they make in that movie, it's absolute insanity. It wouldn't pass muster with like anybody in this world that had any kind of decent scientific background. So, um, just to the audience, you know, investigate further. I knew, uh, I watched Forks Over Knives years ago. I, I, I was like shocked at 10 minutes in, they claimed that, Uh, some cultures, including Papua New Guinea, uh, were all healthy because they, you know, like they didn't eat a lot of meat. And that's so wrong. They had a very high fat diet. They're like pork heavy, coconut heavy. And I had just done a documentary featuring Melanesia. So I knew this and I was like, Oh my God. Like I can't believe this. So. Yeah, we got to look further into that. Let's talk a little bit about. um, Before I get into this, I want to hear about some good success stories. What's your day like? How many pounds of meat? Um, I know you like steaks because I see some gorgeous steaks you cook on. um, What's that grill you use? It's pretty fascinating.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's called the Ottawa Grill. It's just this real, it's like a restaurant salamander where they get real hot. So it gets to like 1,500 degrees in like two minutes. So I can literally throw a steak on it. It's done in, you know, two minutes per side and it's super nice here. And I like a medium rare. But um my typical day, you know, and right now I'm in a little atypical period cuz I'm trying to put on some weight so I'm literally eating about every 3 hours trying to gorge myself cuz I got too skinny the last few weeks cuz I was just too busy with work and so I and I'm getting ready to go to Paris to compete in these rowing world championships so I need to put some size back on. But um you know, typically it's, you know, I one of the things that we see one of the problems that we see with people is i think we have this this snack culture now where we're constantly constantly eating i think if we look at i mean americans average eat for 16 hours a day almost continuously at this point and i don't think that's a natural pattern i think a natural pattern for for a human species is probably infrequent meal patterns there's a number of benefits you know of that you know we talk about some people like to talk about autophagy and intermittent fasting but i think the the diet that what I eat that is a meat-based diet, and I, and I and I want to be very clear. I don't necessarily think everybody needs to be on 100% meat-based diet, but I do think meat probably makes the staple of, of a human food diet. And I think when we go that, you know, the the current U.S. diet is about 70% plant-based, and they want us to go further plant-based. And we only eat about two pound two ounces of beef a day on the average American. But when we when we really really push that and say I'm going to eat mostly meat, you run into this really nice easy, simple pattern. For me, it's about twice a day. In fact, most people, it's about twice a day. They eat, you know, a bowl of steak, maybe steak and eggs. Some people want some seafood. Some people put, add a little dairy in there. Some people add some organ meats in there. And that usually works well. And then often one more time during out the day. And that's that's a pattern uh, that I often fall into unless I specifically have some specific goal. If I want to get particularly lean, I might eat once a day. If I want to, like I said, if I want to put on muscle in size, I'll eat more frequently.
1: So let's talk about a a couple of success stories that really stand out. There's so many. If you go to meetrx.com, I mean, really, the before and after pictures and the stories, wow, everything from someone just struggling with weight to, you know, like we said, Crohn's. What are some, I mean, I know they're all wonderful. What are some that really stand out in your mind um, that have blown you away?
0: Well, I think one of the the biggest one, and we interviewed this gal named Dr. Donna Layton, and she had something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is actually a genetic Collagen disorder and what it results in for many people and in her situation Uh, you know, she had had, you know, constant joint pain. She was having a hard time working as an er physician Uh, her her joints become so locked that they dislocate on their own spontaneously or they sublux, which is a partial dislocation And so her day at I think she's I think she's in her late 50s, you know, 57 or so Every day she would wake up with anywhere between two and four joints dis- completely dislocated. Oh, God. So she'd wake so she'd wake up in the morning, put her shoulder back in place, put her ankle back in place, put one of her wrists back in place, get her clothes on, go to work, you know, hopefully throughout the day she only has one dislocation through the day. This was her life. She couldn't really exercise. You know, it was painful. She was developing arthritis. As you imagine, as imagine, your joints continuously dislocating.
1: I just want to stop and say that's the most insane shit I've ever heard. And I am like crying for her past right now. <laughs> oh
0: my God. Yeah. Yeah. But that, okay. that's, but that was her day. And she goes on a carnivore diet. And within a month, no more dislocations. A year into it, she's not had a single dislocation. She is working out. She's doing full squats. She's getting stronger Aww. because of that. She's has been able to lose weight. She's got essentially no pain. She's able to work normally. This is a genetic disorder. Uh, this, is, this was, to me, was very shocking. This is one of probably the most... You know, and a lot of people don't appreciate that because because you know we see so many common diseases that are you know diabetes, obesity, you know even some of the autoimmune diseases which we think are environmental potentially environmentally do, induced. But this clearly is a genetic disorder. That was one of the most impressive things to me. And then you know beyond that, there's just so many and there's and she's not the only one. In fact, I've heard a number of people now with the same condition that have said some very similar things that it has improved. Their, their quality of life dramatically. So that's something cool that genetic diseases seem to respond to this. We've had things like familial he- hemochromatosis, which is an iron storage disorder. And you would think that eating lots and lots of red meat would cause that, that condition to get worse. And so what a lot of people do is because they have so much iron, they're constantly donating blood. I've had people where they've been they've had hemochromatosis, they go on a carnivore diet, and guess what? Their iron actually normalizes; they no longer have to, to give blood, which would be completely counterintuitive until you understand that you know iron regulation is based on a whole bunch of things, and our metabolic health probably is one of the bigger biggest driver of that. And so, uh, you know, I could go on, on and on. No, those
1: are really those are really two great examples because they are so unique, and they might even be considered a little rare. Or, but they're, what they really are is that almost every doctor, other than you, and maybe a couple that are up on it would have no clue how to help these people or or helping them in the wrong way, essentially hurting them. <clears throat> right. Who wants to keep donating, but <laughs> nobody wants to do that. So those are, those are amazing. Um, you know, in wrapping up, I want to talk uh, a little bit first about your book, the carnivore diet. Um, obviously we're going to learn a little bit about this, but you, you throw and go into some more depth on science on some of these points we've talked about. So tell us a little bit about uh, your book.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, when I was writing the book, I'd been doing this for a while, and a lot of people, you know, you know, I've I sit there, you know, on social media posting stuff after stuff, study after study after study, and so a lot of people, you know, we've kind of educated through the masses, and a lot of that information's out there, but really, the book was designed to reach the 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 masses in general, and so I had to write it for some that may never have heard of the carnivore diet, so I had to, I had to keep a lot of stuff very accessible and i include quite a bit of science in there there's lots of references in there and we talk about some concepts um you know just this the outline of the book you know initially i turned it in and they said we want your story because you didn't include that so i wrote an autobiographical part that comes up that, that comes up front there's some interesting stuff in there you know that, that occurred in my life that some people have enjoyed reading about i had to leave a lot of it got deleted because it was too Maybe it was too graphic for people to deal with. So, you know, because it was like, oh, well, that may be too much for a diet book. And so that got left out. But I then go into, you know, kind of the evolutionary stuff. And I, and I know there are people out there that disagree with the theory of evolution or, or, or that evolution occurred. But, you know, whatever. that, that that's that, that, But it did. Well, I mean, yeah. but that, that, is, that is included in the book. Some of the historical perspectives, you know, there's people that have been eating a lot of meat for a long time. We've got the clear data on that. I then go into, um, you know, why potentially it seems to be working from a more, you know, sort of plausible physiologic reason or pathologic reason on a lot of these diseases. Uh, We go into some of the success stories because I think those are important. These stories seem to make a huge difference in people's lives. Uh, We go into how to implement it and then some of the things that come up, some of the issues, because I can just tell people, hey, man, just go eat a steak. Don't worry about it. And a lot of people will do fine with that, but there's, there's always people that have these different various backgrounds. So we address or try to address as many of those things as possible. Um, I do touch on veganism, why I I think there's some problems with that particular argument as as a sustainable future and why we probably don't need to be all going that route. And then I just talk about, you know, more just sort of uh, tips and, and, you know, different shortcuts. And, and then there's kind of an epilogue and I kind of, try to talk about how there's a there's a over picture there's no there's a bigger picture in general on where we can go in the future you know do we just sort of uh let these giant you know multinational food companies just dictate our diet and are we all going to be eating you know the, the the future food the processed you know bars and and the cheaply high, highly processed stuff uh, or are we going to return to uh eating you know maybe a more natural human diet and i think there's a there's a real I mean, literally it's a battle coming up and I think we can, yep. we can either, we can either be passive about it and see what happens or we can, we can take a stand. And I'm, I'm in the latter category.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, your work is amazing. And again, it's healing so many people. Um, Tell us, can we work with you directly? If someone's out there listening and they're like, I need help. I think this is for me, but I need guidance. Um, do you work one-on-one with people?
0: I do. And I've done that. And, you know, one of the things I've seen is I'm just, at this point, I get overwhelmed with the number of people that want to reach out to me. That's one of the reasons we started MeetRx. I've trained a whole bunch of coaches to know, you know, basically how to handle most people. There's some people that might need a little, a little additional support. And so, and one of my missions is to make it affordable. I mean, if you look at that, I mean, these coaches are, are to their credit, are willing to work at a a price that is much, much lower than what anyone would see. I mean, it's literally for a 30-minute session. It's like $18, which is— Oh,
1: my God. That is amazing.
0: And and the reason is, and the reason we have people that are willing to do it is because they are passionate about it. They do this anyway for free. I mean, these people are spending their spare time talking to people either in person or on social media. And, you know, it's just like, you know, I, I see a tremendous need out here. We have a healthcare system that is bloated, it is ineffective, particularly when it comes to chronic disease. It is employed by, it employs millions of, of these people that are tech, radiology techs, lab techs, you know, nursing assistants. And, and that's not getting the job done. All we're doing is putting Band-Aids. And so I, I like to think I'm now in this health creation space, this health creation business. But it has to be accessible. You know, my dream was put an army of people in people's homes uh, to, to help them to show them how to the heck to, to feed themselves, to exercise, to do the lifestyle things that is less doable. But now with technology, you can put them on their cell phone and you can get a coach on your cell phone, you know, and, and for a very cheap price, like an Uber driver, that's our model that we're, we're working towards. Uh, and that is something that, that I think is, can be a potential real health disruptor. And, and my goal is let's you know, look at the model that I'm proposing and, and look at whatever outcome you want to look at. And compare it to the standard of care, you know, and and see who wins. And if we get a better outcome, and there's no guarantee that we will, but if we do, you know, and I believe we will, then we can start, then the market can start to dictate, hey, I've got this problem. Where do I want to go? Where do I want to spend my time and effort Do I want to spend years uh, in the doctor's office going from doctor to doctor that tells me I'm crazy and puts me on this pill and that pill and this pill. Or is there something that's more effective? And that and that's what we're trying to do. And again, it's it, the, the point I try to make is I don't want to just cater to rich dudes, you know, that they're gonna they are gonna they're gonna, you know, pay to live three years longer. I mean, that's not my goal. My goal is to to help as many people as possible that may be struggling financially, that are tired of being sick, and that's the majority of people in my view.
1: Well, and you know what? Um, is the, first of all, that's an incredible mission. It's so lovely. These people are so selfish. And like you said, so passionate. Some of the, um, when I went through my thyroid issue, the best people that helped me were fellow patients on forums for free that were giving their time because they were so passionate about helping others because doctors didn't know what they're talking about. They were the ones that helped me save my life not the docs. I went through 50 of them. And so I love that you've created this team and, you know, these passionate people, because once you've solved something like this, that has debilitated your life. And as you know, this price point is important because it is expensive to go through the ringer with tests and doctors, of course, you know, never getting anywhere, getting the wrong answers, getting pills. And at the end of it, you're broke. And you're hating it, and you're like, "What else is there?" So that is just so wonderful. Um, We will put everything to connect with you in the show notes. But tell us where we can um, find your book and uh, either work with you or the team that you've trained.
0: Yeah. So the book uh, is, you know, Amazon, you know, it's it's got it. It's it's been number one in a number of categories for for quite a while. Uh, I think Barnes and Noble sells it. You know, I know for sure. You know. Nationwide and, and, and to some degree wherever they are worldwide. I don't know if it's in every one of those stores, but it has a pretty significant presence there. Uh, there are a couple other online things. You just 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 Google Sean Baker S H A W N B A K E R and then the carnivore diet book. You can certainly find it if you go to sean-baker.com. You can you can link to it there. Um, meat RX. It's like meat with a prescription sign. You know, meatrx.com is where you can go to find out. And we've listed on that site. You know all these success stories these hundreds and hundreds of success stories that are categorized by you know acne autoimmune disease you know a to Z basically you know diabetes obesity you know thyroid disease you know you, there's hundreds of categories and hundreds of stories and then importantly we started to collect all the research and we've got and again physicians that are doing this for free in their spare time building our research library so you have all these research articles to support what we're doing what you're doing Uh, We've got some, you know, a whole bunch of dozens and actually probably hundreds of recipes now for people that want to make carnival more exciting. Uh, And then uh, we've got, you know, the coaching program. And then every day we do these forums that are that are video. They're all like Zoom video. And we have 30, 40 people, 50 people meeting together in in video as close as you can get to face to face. That's another wonderful tool for support because, you know, with Facebook, you have to. You have to type and you're not sure who you're exactly talking to and it's very confusing. And then the other thing is you may not may or not be aware that Facebook and some of these other social media platforms are starting to get into the health police game. And yep, so if, which if is you, a real problem. Right. So we have this looming censorship thing going on. And so this is another place that we're trying to do. We want to be able to talk about this freely and help people and not have somebody put a big fake news or we disagree or, 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 you know, SEO optimize you out of the to make you irrelevant. This is a thing I know Rob Wolf went through that. Yep. Um, and, and so this is kind of what we're doing to, to, to kind of fight back against that.
1: Sean Baker, MD, look him up, follow him on Instagram, Sean Baker, 1967, I believe is your handle. We'll put everything to connect with you in the show notes. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. Um, you know, it's, What's interesting, and, and, you know, even though we just talked about how, like, okay, most of the medical community doesn't know what's up, still, though, when you have an MD behind your name, it brings a lot of weight. And so it's just amazing that there is an MD like you representing this community and doing all that you're doing with the research and um, to help others. I just uh, commend you, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and I can't wait to learn more. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our audience?
0: yeah i would like to say that you know up to this point outside of you know studies from the 1920s on this diet and, and a few case reports we really don't have a lot of we can't really hang our hat on saying this study but fortunately due to the response and all the success stories people have shared there has been increasing research interest in the research community and david ludwig out of word, and another uh, physician uh, head researcher are actually we going to be studying this carnivore population that's going to be kicking off here probably within two months so we will We'd like to do this, but are kind of worried because there's not that literature background. So that is occurring, and I'm very uh, excited to see that come to fruition.
1: That's excellent. Thanks so much um, for joining us, and we'll see you all next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen collagen peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes and more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides.
0: Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health
1: coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.